Um, we are continuing in our Equipping Hours series. Uh, we are doing an Old Testament survey uh, that we began actually last fall in 2022. Um, and this fall, we are just picking up where we left off, and we are kind of halfway through uh, our survey for this latter half of the Old Testament. Today we'll be looking at the book of Daniel, um, a very full and interesting book, to say the least. Um, but before we get into it, let me pray for us and uh, we'll get going. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for, for gathering us. Um, God, we thank you for your word and uh, for gathering us around your word to hear um, and see you reveal yourself to us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly, um, and I pray that the material that I'm presenting today, the, the lesson that I have, would be helpful uh, and beneficial to those who hear. Um, may we just have greater awe of uh, your work in, uh, throughout redemptive history. May we just be in awe of uh, your character as we study the book of Daniel today. And I trust that you um, are working mightily uh, in us through Christ. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, good morning, everyone. So uh, today, like I said, we'll be doing an overview of the book of Daniel. Um, and just to kick our time off, just to get some interaction going and, and uh, get us awake, how many of us have, with show of hands, how many of us has actually read through the book of Daniel in its entirety? Um, good, good amount of us. Um, how many of us at least know maybe a story or two or a couple of the stories or some of the visions of the book of Daniel just off the top of your head? Probably a good amount of us. Uh, this one's just for my own amusement. How many of us, how many of us have just watched some of the VeggieTale renditions of the book of Daniel? Probably a good amount of us. It's pretty... Pretty famous. I, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, but going to VBS as an unbelieving child, I, I was exposed to the VeggieTale version of the, I think it was the chocolate bunny or something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So many of us are, are familiar with at least parts of the book of Daniel, uh, which is definitely helpful. Um, can any of us just very briefly name any of the stories? I, I alluded to the chocolate bunny, which we know is not actually a chocolate bunny, but a golden idol, right? Does anyone, can anyone just list off or, or name a couple other stories or even the visions that you've read in the book of Daniel? Yes, I don't want to butcher their names, but yeah. Shabnak, Shabnak, Meshach, and Menico. Yeah, um, those are Daniel's fellow uh, people from Judah, of course. Uh, I think someone else mentioned something over on the side. Lion's Den. The Lion's Den, of course, that's a very famous story. Chen Wei? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dreams that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has. Um, handwriting on the wall. Handwriting on the wall, that's hard to forget, right? Um, anyone else? Anyone remember any of the visions? Those are, those are a little harder, but anything about the visions? 
And that's okay, that's okay. So that's why we are going through the book of Daniel today. Um, I think, oh, Seth, you got it. The four beasts, there we go, that's a big one. That's, a, that's an important one. And the son of man, that's definitely a very prominent one in there. Yeah, and desolation, yes, lots of desolation. Um, thank you, that, yeah, so probably in our own experience, um, whether growing up <coughs> in the church or uh, having our kids go to Sunday school, we probably won't be teaching our kids about the visions very much. <laughs> we'll probably maybe expose them to the the imagery and the, the creatures and the, the beasts and all that fun stuff of them, but probably the more friendlier parts of Daniel lie in the first half with all the stories um, of the kings of Babylon and, and Darius and the things going on with Daniel and his friends. Um, but today, as we do this overview of the book of Daniel, our ultimate goal is not just to run through the whole sequence of events and stories that make up this book of the Old Testament. Of course, we will do that. Just I don't want to presume that everyone knows this book. Um, nor will we be able to tease out every last detail of every dream and vision that is presented to us. Um, I certainly want to engage and hear your questions. Uh, I've done my fair share of reading on this book of the Bible. Um, and there definitely, if you read through the book of Daniel and you don't have any questions, I would say read it again. There's a, there's a lot that is mystifying, a lot to be confused over. Um, it can be a challenging book. So I welcome any questions that you might have that you've had for a while, or even as I'm um, teaching on some of these things, uh, things that come to mind. Uh, definitely share those and we'll interact over those. Um, but some of the questions or thoughts we might have about the book of Daniel uh, will actually prove to help us see the bigger picture of this book more clearly. Um, even though some of these details, some of the uh, things that we see in Daniel are very confusing, um, at times troubling, um, these small details um, actually help us to see the bigger picture clearly. It's like we are are able to get a more high-definition view of the book of Daniel and of what God is doing here. Um, so definitely ask your questions uh, and uh, share your thoughts there. Um, as fun as deep diving into some of the details is, though, unfortunately, our goal is to be able to see what God is to do on, uh, to be able to see what God is doing on a larger scale for his people in exile. This book uh, is to... Uh, is written in the time of exile when they were when the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel are finally in ruin. Uh, the kingdom of Babylon has taken over, uh, and we're really just trying to see what God is doing in this era, um, in what the Israelites might have seen as a very godless era. They were under the the kingship of pagan rulers, uh, under traditions and and laws that uh, very much denied God. Um, we are trying to see what God is doing in this book and in this time for them. And from, those, uh, from seeing what God is doing on a larger scale, uh, we can then tease out some universal truths uh, and implications that are just as beneficial to uh, the audience at the time as they are to us. Um, and hopefully we'll see a lot of those. So by the end of the lesson today, uh, hopefully you're a little bit more equipped uh, to read Daniel. It's not as daunting, especially that latter half. Um, and I hope that you have even a desire to go back in and read through it 
uh, knowing what you've learned from this lesson, and just be able to enjoy and see God's work um, in this part of redemptive history for his glory. Uh, the book of Daniel just really serves to encourage. Um, that is really the primary purpose, to encourage and bolster any of us who are in Christ uh, and are willing to crack it open to see God's plan unfold. Um, it is a book of encouragement, though at times when you read it, it doesn't seem that case when you are confused and when I am confused reading through details and trying to piece together timelines. It's hard, um, but the overarching theme God is wanting for us is to be encouraged and comforted um, with what he has in this book. So with that intro, is there any questions that we have? Hopefully nothing too hard right now. You can save the harder ones for later. Any questions before we, we dive into it? Okay. So let's get some uh, preliminary things out of the way. Of course, we have to review the authorship and dating of the book of Daniel. Um, so the author of Daniel has been widely accepted to be Daniel himself. Uh, and this book kind of covers his life from 605 BC, which marks the end of Judah. Uh, you read in chapter one that Nebuchadnezzar um, has taken people back to Babylon from uh, what remains of Judah. And this stretches all the way to 538 BC uh, with the decree of Cyrus. Uh, you've probably heard this name Cyrus before in a couple of our other equipping our lessons uh, because Cyrus is the one who decrees that God's people should return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And they, he decrees that and he allows them to go home and not trap them in Babylon. Um, and of course, that's a, it's a, that's a glorious hope for the people, for the Jews of this time. Um, they don't necessarily see it yet or maybe even trust in it yet. Um, but as readers now, we see that, that promise and we see it come to fruition. Um, and so we can acknowledge that there's, there's hope there for those people. Um, so again, it covers this time span from 605, end of Judah, to 538 B.C., the decree of Cyrus. And this book was written in the approximately the 6th century B.C. Um, and there's actually evidence of this because uh, a good part of the book of Daniel is written in first person. Um, so the visions that come in the latter half from like chapter 7 to the end, chapter 12, um, these are all from Daniel's first-person point of view. And uh, we actually get to experience a little bit of what he is feeling, not just in seeing and understanding the visions, but what he is like, physically and emotionally feeling uh, while he's receiving these visions. Uh, it's pretty scary to him, and it's, uh, it's very taxing on his body, too, at some points. Um, so with that, we kind of see that Daniel is an author of it. Some people might say that um, these prophecies were, were written in after the fact. So um, there are some critics that would say um, there's no way that people could have confirmed uh, these, these uh, prophecies, these visions. A lot of them have to do with the, the kingdoms and the kings and the empires that follow Babylon. Um, and we know that Cyrus is a Persian, so maybe Daniel could write on the Babylonian kings Maybe he could have written about the decree of Cyrus. Um, but there's no way he would have known about Alexander the Great, 
or there's no way he would have known about the Romans. Um, but as God's people, uh, we know that God's ability to reveal uh, predictively, God's ability to um, predict the future and uh, give that to his people through the means of his prophets uh, is very much within his power. He's capable of doing that, and such critiques really have no basis um, if we are trusting in the God of history. Um, he's able to do that. He does that often, as we see, as we're studying through the prophets. Um, so the fact that maybe some of the visions include future events and future kingdoms and powers uh, does not negate the fact that God is able to do this, um, and he's not bound by any of these human limitations and limitations we might have in our mind. Um, so again, Daniel is just written by himself. Um, it's very helpful, again, because we get some very, very vivid and real first-person experience from him. Um, and uh, this kind of covers the span of his lifetime there. Are there any other questions for authorship and dating? Any? There's a, there's a lot of debate over this kind of stuff. Yeah, Steph. Yeah, there, there is definitely a curious part in the first portion of, or the first half of Daniel, where uh, the first person voice kind of turns to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, I honestly, I don't really know too much about that. Um, it's possible because uh, Daniel was promoted to be a very high up person that uh, he got those accounts from Nebuchadnezzar himself. Uh, just because he was so close to uh, the Babylonian king, kings, they trusted him, as we'll see when they when they trust him to interpret his dreams. Um, but yeah, it's it's very curious. Uh, it's what was that dictated to him? Yeah, possibly. Um, yeah, could be. Uh, very much speaks to a little bit of the challenge that comes with reading the Book of Daniel. Um, Lots of kind of narration point of view that changes and, and flips um, along with other kind of timing things. But yeah, good question, good question. Any other thoughts on authorship or dating? Okay. So we're going to move on to the genres in Daniel, and we're going <coughs> to... We're going to spend a little bit of time camping out here uh, just as a means of getting everyone familiar with the general plot um, and outline of the book of Daniel. Uh, as I get into the, the genres of the book of Daniel, um, I want to make note that the genres aren't the only ways of structuring uh, Daniel. There's not, they're not the only ways of outlining or dividing up Daniel. Um, You'll look at your, if you see on your handout, I have after this, as uh, number four, um, the book of Daniel is actually written in two different languages. Um, so we have chapter one into a little bit of chapter two that's written in uh, Aramaic. Wait, nope. That one, a part is written in Hebrew. Uh, and then uh, chapter two to the, to the end of chapter seven is written in Hebrew. Aramaic, yes, sorry. Two to seven is written in Aramaic, and then the surrounding parts are written in Hebrew, sorry. Um, but these two ways of dividing up Daniel aren't 
in conflict. They, they actually serve to help us see the unity of the book. Um, and we'll see that shortly as we go through each of them. Uh, but I just want to make that note now. Um, it's not really two conflicting ways to structure and divide up Daniel, but uh, understanding the genres and also understanding the languages in which Daniel is written in actually helps us to see the unity and the, the continuity of what's going on in this book. Um, so yeah, while we go through the genre, um, it's important, of course, to as we have learned as we're uh, going through the Old Testament, that genre is important in how we understand and read these portions of scripture. Uh, they inform us on um, literary devices and inform us on the structure and how to to follow the, the logic of texts in the Old Testament. Um, but the book structure can also be noticed by examining the genres that we're engaging with. So they not only inform the way we read, um, but they help give us framework and, and structure that we can latch onto and we can very easily divide up Daniel with the genres. Um, in this case, you'll see that the book of Daniel is actually split pretty evenly down the middle between historical narrative and apocalyptic, apocalyptic prophecy. So we have historical narrative from chapters one to six, uh, and we have that apocalyptic prophecy that follows uh, in chapter tw 7 to 12. Um, and this is, this is uh, where we're going to camp out a little bit, again, just to get a gist of what's going on. Um, within the historical narrative, at least, there's a, there's a lot of familiar stories. I think earlier when people were sharing, we pretty much got like the bulk of chapters 1 through 6 uh, out of the way. We, we had mentioned pretty much everything. I'll just kind of Zoom through it really fast, but the book of Daniel kind of opens up with Daniel and his friends are exiled from Judah to Babylon. Um, it's important to note that Daniel's friends, they actually, the names that we are probably more familiar with, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are actually their Babylonian names. So when they were exiled to Babylon, um, all kinds of changes were happening for them, to, to put it lightly. Um, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, was changing all kinds of things for them, including their names. So in a sense, you kind of get a, get, a, get a taste of the, the very nature of being in exile is tempting them and, and almost forcing upon them a new identity. Um, even though they are God's people who just came from Judah, and of course they were uh, utterly destroyed by Babylon, um, the evil, evil forces, the pagan forces, uh, the pagan kings are exerting even more pressure to change them and tempt them to stray away from God, even with changing their names. Uh, Daniel, of course, is his uh, Jewish name, but Daniel gets a new name too. He's, he's known as uh, Belteshazzar, <laughs> uh, not to be confused with uh, Belshazzar, which is the later Babylonian king, but Daniel gets a new name, um, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those are their new names already. Their original names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, and now they live in the midst of a godless Babylon. Um, so these are God's people, God's chosen people, but they've been exiled to a godless nation. Um, <coughs> and that kind of chapter one sets the, the stage for kind of the whole rest of this, uh, this book. 
So there's some challenges that they face um, regarding living in Babylon now. And then later on, uh, we get to Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, uh, the dream of an image of different materials, this kind of statue. Um, there's a huge, uh, huge drama over who's able to interpret it, and actually Daniel is, rises to the occasion, is able to interpret it without even hearing from Nebuchadnezzar himself. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is very impressed and promotes him to this high position. Um, so Daniel's in this high position, and then comes Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, where, again, he's trying to force everyone under his rule to submit themselves to his, um, his rule, his, uh, almost his deity, his, uh, his sense of deityness. And uh, they, we get this famous story of the golden image, uh, where the three friends of Daniel, they refuse to worship that image. They refuse to bow down to it, and they get thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, and we know from, from reading that uh, it actually ends well for our three friends because they survive the fiery furnace. There's actually a fourth person that they, they see in the furnace, uh, presumably an agent of God that saves them. Um, and again, Nebuchadnezzar is impressed. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty interesting how the pagan king uh, worships God in a sense. He, he exalts God and, and speaks of God in a very uh, well manner. He, he uh, speaks of God's power and eternal kingdom. Um, doesn't, I don't know if, how much that really says about his heart. Uh, I think it would be a stretch to say that Nebuchadnezzar was converted um, but he definitely was was seeing the, the work of God and the power of God very clearly, uh, even in this instance here. And then following the, the fiery furnace, uh, we have Nebuchadnezzar's second dream, uh, which is about himself. Uh, it's a very kind of humiliating dream uh, because Nebuchadnezzar basically gets, uh, gets turned into a likeness of a beast, like an animal. Uh, he goes from the king of the Babylonian Empire to someone who crawls on the floor and eats, uh, eats off the ground. Uh, that's essentially what happens to him. But in God's grace, uh, he restores Nebuchadnezzar um, and restores his kingdom to him. Um, and again, Nebuchadnezzar praises God uh, because of that. And then uh, we, we transition to King Belshazzar. Uh, between King Nebuchadnezzar and King, King Belshazzar, there's actually three Babylonian kings that aren't mentioned. Um, they're not really necessary to how we understand the text, um, but there is a, a little bit of time between the two. Um, but King Belshazzar, we, we know him from the handwriting on the wall. Uh, it's a very vivid imagery. He and other Babylonian officials are, are partying. Uh, they use the vessels of, of God, so the, the, the cups and the, the, wor- the vessels of worship that they plundered from Jerusalem. They used those, those holy objects, to party and, and get drunk and, and uh, have a good time. Uh, but then they are suddenly alarmed by handwriting on the wall. It uh, kind of stops everyone in their place, and they go and look for someone who can interpret it. And, of course, Daniel is back in action um, and in, interprets it to be um, that God is going to destroy Belshazzar's kingdom. Um, God takes the kingdom from Belshazzar and gives it to the Medes. Um, and we later 
kind of associate the Medes with Darius as uh, who comes after King Belshazzar. Um, and so the, the scene kind of switches over to, or to Darius, who is uh, a Median king. Um, and of course, within the context of Darius, we get the story, um, the trial of the lion's den. Um, it's a very interesting story because uh, Darius is actually very fond of Daniel. Um, Daniel is, again, a very high up position in uh, Darius's uh, group of officials. Um, but there are some jealous officials uh, within Darius's rule that scheme against Daniel. Uh, Daniel, they, they basically put into place and get Darius to sign something that says you can't worship uh, other gods. Um, and Daniel uh, persists in praying, uh, worshiping God through prayer, and they throw him into the lion's den because of that. Uh, Darius is actually very distraught. Uh, funnily, funnily enough, he is very distraught when Daniel is thrown into the den. He like cries out to him at the mm. at the side of the the hole, and uh, uh, of course we know that Daniel survives. He uh, he survives by God's grace and by God's power. Um, and Darius uh, exalts God and and uh, promotes uh, Daniel, gives him much blessing, um, and that kind of concludes that first historical narrative portion of. Um, of the book of Daniel from chapters one through six. So there's a lot going on. Um, it, there's, a, there's a lot of stories, a lot of pivots, turns, uh, even as Seth mentioned, even little pivots in narration, uh, who's, who's voicing what's being written. Um, but we get a really clear picture of what it looks like to live in exile in the midst of these uh, pagan kings. Um, and kingship and kingdoms are kind of a, a good thing to grasp onto here in this section. Uh, we don't want to detach the stories from what's going on uh, surrounding them. Um, these aren't just isolated stories that uh, happen uh, apart from the pagan kings that are ruling at the time. Uh, if you follow the, the, de the details closely, um, you'll see that there are actually kind of four kingdoms that are named. Um, Largely in, in, uh, in chapter 2, when Daniel interprets uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, there are four kingdoms that kind of come to mind that, uh, that are made apparent to us. Um, and these are kind of the less familiar kingdoms. I call them less familiar just because in these first six chapters, we're probably more familiar with the, the stories and what's going on. Um, but it's also important that we keep track of uh, who's being or who has power who's ruling, um, and kind of noticing that their rule dwindles, their rule ends, um, and that they are no, they're, they're just human kings, uh, as powerful, as much influence as they have, um, as evil as some of their practices might be. Um, these kings are evil, uh, or they're temporary, and they, uh, their reigns eventually end. So the, the four kingdoms that you kind of see in at least the, chapter 2 in the dream. Of course, it's Babylon, um, very clearly, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Um, and then we see a little bit of Mede um, through in, in the character of King Darius. And uh, the Median Empire is kind of kind of transitions into the Persian Empire when King Cyrus takes over. 
Um, so the first kingdom would be Babylon. The second kingdom is kind of like a Medo-Persian, kind of like a combination of the two. And then the third kingdom would be Greece um, with Alexander the Great. And we'll kind of hear more about these as we get into the apocalyptic visions. Um, and then the fourth kingdom would be Rome. So with these kind of four kingdoms, I would just advise as you read through the book of Daniel, keep them in your back pocket. I think uh, even as I was reading through this, this text, it's helpful to, to gauge where you are. It's kind of like landmarks in, in the book of Daniel. You get a sense of where you are, um, who's in power. You get a sense of... Um, the context in which things are happening. Uh, as you're reading through the stories, it can e- be easy to, to lose track of where you are and then things get confusing and then uh, narrative voices change over. Um, but these four kingdoms, you'll see kind of woven into the fabric of the whole book of Daniel. Um, and they are, they're very clearly mentioned here and there. Um, at least the Babylonian one, uh, the Medo-Persian one is pretty clear. Um, and then Greece and Rome are a little bit more, um, you just kind of have to know a little bit more of your history as you're, as you're reading through the book. They are mentioned and referred to in the visions that come later. Um, but it really goes to show uh, how much these, uh, how long exile is for the, the God's people. They they're stuck. They, they might think that they're getting out of exile when one king falls, but another one comes in and takes up the, the pagan rule. And um, it seems very bleak. Like a lot of, there are four whole kingdoms, each with their own line of kings. Um, but this is the context in which God is having us read this book here. Um, so I know that was a lot. Are there any questions uh, right now, at least on this first half of Daniel? the historical narrative part. Any questions? Any any maybe details that you thought are important that I missed? Because there are definitely a couple. Yeah. I just did Daniel in the lion's den with the kids. Oh, yeah. And, and learned that Daniel was like 80 when he did that little. <laughs> <laughs> Quite inspiring. Yeah, very, very. In our golden years, what we can do. Don't go fighting lions, though, Patty. (laughs) (laughs) Any other comments or questions on historical narrative? If not, we'll get into the apocalyptic visions. Um, So in my own own experience, and probably for some of us who have read through the book of Daniel, um, this is where the challenge really comes in. at least for me, um, I going into preparing for this lesson, I wasn't all that familiar with even the kingdoms that I just mentioned, the ordering of them, uh, the specific kings of each kingdom. Um, and these visions very much focus on those. Um, again, the visions kind of expand on the context of, of which the, the stories in the first half kind of happen. Um, the visions definitely introduce and reinforce the idea of kingdoms and kings especially as they pertain to uh, the pagan rulers that are uh, ruling over the people of God. Um, but there, there are definitely details that we want to keep track of. Um, that There are details that help us to keep track of which kingdom is which, 
Um, and it's, it's helpful to get a general idea, a general hold of who our characters are. Um, in the first half of the, of the book of Daniel, it's pretty clear who our characters are, who they represent. Um, they're name by name. Uh, they're things that are described about them. But as we get into the visions, uh, it's a little harder. Even as we read through this book, it's, uh, I think it's a natural inclination to want to know, like, who is this person? Who is uh, this beast? Who is this king? Um, so I'm just going to give off a really quick overview of uh, kind of just one-to-one comparisons. Um, some of these are still debated, uh, but I think I chose the route that is safest and uh, most helpful. I won't belabor you with very obscure kings, um, but we'll, we'll see that there are a couple that we should take note of before we dive into the visions. Uh, for example, as we look in chapter 7, before uh, Daniel has this vision about the Ancient of Days, before he has this vision about the Son of Man, uh, Daniel has a dream about four beasts. Uh, they're very strange beasts to us, definitely not any normal-looking animals uh, by any standard. Um, and these four beasts uh, are representing four kingdoms. Uh, the kingdoms that I mentioned earlier, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, um, these are what the four beasts um, represent. And if, if you have time um, when you're studying or you are per- particularly inclined towards history, uh, you'll notice that the characteristics of each beast, uh, whether it's the number of wings or the horns or maybe that their they're ribs sticking, sticking out the side, um, these kind of help historians and help us see and kind of piece out who these kings might be and who these kingdoms might be. Um, so keep that in mind as you're, as you're reading. There are four beasts uh, kind of associated and correlating with the four kingdoms. Uh, and then we move on to a vision of a ram and a goat. Um, and this, many people have agreed upon that these are, uh, these are, this is a conflict between the Medo-Persia kingdom and empire um, between them and the, the Greek empire that follows, uh, namely Alexander the Great. So again, we'll, there's like a ram um, that thinks it's, uh, it's all that. It's, it's romping around and it's uh, enjoying life and, and being all powerful. But then comes this goat that's even stronger uh, and takes it down, destroys it. Uh, but even the goat is not uh, indestructible. It's, uh, it's rain, the single horn that's represented on the goat uh, is split into four, uh, kind of in line with how Alexander the Great being the goat, not to, no pun intended, but uh, he, he comes and he rules, but at the end of his reign, his, uh, his Greek empire kind of splits into four. Um, so that's kind of how uh, people have pieced together that this, uh, this vision in particular is is related to the Medo-Persian Empire versus the Greek. And then uh, we move into chapter 9. Uh, Daniel takes this time to pray. Um, he, he reads through some of Jeremiah's work and, and recognizes that um, the time of judgment, time of exile, is almost coming to an end. Uh, but he recognizes that his people, God's people, have not been very repentant. And so he prays a prayer of confession uh, pleading for God's mercy on God's people. Um, 
And so we have that prayer. He gets an answer to that from, uh, from an agent of God. And then we transition to another vision um, of a northern and southern king. Um, and here in this vision of the northern and southern king, um, those two kings, um, again, as we get further into the book of Daniel, it gets a little harder to parse out who exactly these kings are. Um, but most people agree that the, this northern and southern king are two of the four Greek kings that came out of Alexander's rule. So Alexander's rule, he was the sole king, and then his empire was split into these four smaller empires and kingdoms. And so the northern and southern king are two of those four kingdoms that come out of that. People generally associate the, the northern king as uh, Antiochus IV, uh, a Greek king who uh, you'll read a lot about in, in, the, in chapter 11. He does a lot of changes, and uh, he's actually described uh, in a bit of length his character and his style of ruling. Um, the, the rules and the laws that he implements are described in chapter 11. Um, but just know that the northern and southern king, again, are just two of the four horns or kingdoms that come out of Alexander the Great. Uh, any questions so far as we look at the divisions? So that kind of concludes the visions. Of course, there's, there's one at the end that speaks of the, the end times, uh, which is up to a lot of debate. There's, there's a lot of timing there that is confusing to, to parse out. Um, but I just want to make a quick note and kind of pause as we're reading through the visions, as we're discussing the visions, and acknowledge that uh, it's hard. It's hard to read through them. Um, you have in your handout this quote from Daniel himself in 12.8, uh, 12 verse 8, Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. And if you've read through the book of Daniel, um, you will know that Daniel says that on multiple occasions. He, he's perplexed. He doesn't completely understand. Uh, by God's grace, he, uh, every time that there is a vision, there is some, some sort of interpretation. Um, so you have that solace as you're going into reading this book. Um, but even some of the interpretations can be tough to handle, tough to parse out what's going on. Um, so Daniel is, or we are here with Daniel in his confusion. Uh, he, he struggles with it at times. He's uh, brought to physical ailment um, as he receives these visions. Um, but I just want to acknowledge that it's, it's not just you if you're reading the book of Daniel and recognizing that, oh man, I don't, I don't get any of this, or this is all just like flying over my head or you read the same chapter like five times and you still don't get it, um, you're not alone in that. There's a lot of cryptic timings and numbers and symbols within these visions. Um, but as you're reading and maybe being tempted to feel discouraged, uh, I just want to remind you that there's, there's not necessarily a need to be bogged down with the super finite details of this book. Um, part of even as we're doing this overview of Daniel is to remind us that there is this overarching theme. Um, if you can follow along enough with uh, these themes that we're going to discuss soon, you'll see that the book of Daniel uh, serves to show redemptive history through the context of Daniel and these kings and these kingdoms. 
Um, they show us things like the Ancient of Days. They show us and reveal the Son of Man. They show us their everlasting kingdom. Um, and these themes in and of themselves are very clear. Like even uh, the kings of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, are able to parse out that, wow, God's kingdom, uh, the God of the Jews, his kingdom is everlasting. Uh, it can't be defeated. Um, and so these, these uh, themes that we'll talk about later are helpful to keep in mind as we read through the visions. Uh, similar to how we would keep in our back pocket those four kingdoms that I mentioned earlier as we're reading through the narrative. Um, as you're reading through the visions, uh, it's, it's just important to keep in mind those, those themes and those things that were clear in the first half of the book. Uh, they don't disappear. They don't go away as we're reading through the visions. They still very much are the same um, as we read through the, the latter portion of this book. Um, so are there any questions on the visions? Anyone just dying to know what a certain thing means? <laughs> Now's your time. Any questions or, or comments or maybe even something you found helpful as you've read through some of these visions yourself? I, like how you, I really like how you presented sort of overview of how we look at these visions and just to sort of underscore that, um, that... We might wonder, like, why would God use this method of communication? I think we can get frustrated if we expect that these kinds of apocalyptic visions, which are these sort of heavenly revelation of mysteries, highly laden with symbols and things like uh, kind of a, a special organization of time and things like that. The point is not to maximize transparency with how the future is going to look. The point is to give God's people an organizing, kind of a heavenly perspective that organizes what looks like a chaotic world that they've been thrust into. And just to imagine, you're in this kingdom of Israel, you have these Davidic promises, and suddenly that's blown up. And you're going, is the plan over? Where are we? We're free-falling. And for God to come in and say, you're suddenly in this chaotic, swirling sea of empires and kings that you don't know, and it's scary and it's confusing, but there's sort of this heavenly pictures that say there's order to it, God knows what's happening, even from the beginning, and it does organize around this eternal kingdom of the Son of Man. So just to echo what you're saying, it's the, it's the big pictures that are really the most important. It's a, it's a good word on how to read the visions. Yeah, some of these, some of these uh, visions can be very vivid uh, as you read through them. There's lots of detail in them, um, especially as they pertain to the, the kingdoms and the the pagan kings. Um, and I think part of the, the, the vivid imagery really serves to help us understand, um, make it very clear that this is the evil side. These are the evil kingdoms. Um, if you, even as we take, we'll take a look at chapter seven later, um, the contrast between those four beasts and just their very unnatural and, and strange and grotesque form is compared and put against the backdrop of God's uh, glorious and radiant kingdom that is described um, with the Ancient of Days, with the Son of God, or Son of Man. Um, so part of the imagery really serves to, to help us make it very clear who was who. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to see that, but it's a good word. Any, any other questions on this portion? Okay. 
So I had mentioned earlier before getting into the genres, again, that uh, the book of Daniel is actually written in two languages, Aramaic from chapter 2 to 7, and Hebrews is chapter 1 and the rest of it after uh, chapter 7. Um, I won't spend too much time here, um, but I, I did think it was important to point it out because it's it proves to be helpful even as we read through the book of Daniel. Um, you'll see under the Aramaic portion, uh, I've written there symmetrical structure or chiasms or or a parallelism, if you if you if any of those uh, are more helpful to you. Besides genre, uh, the book of Daniel comprises the more part is comprised of the more particular Hebrew and the more universal Aramaic. Um, like I said earlier, the two languages help us to read Daniel in unity. Uh, there's a sense in which we have one through six and then seven through twelve. But then the Aramaic from 2 to 7 kind of pr provides that little overlap right there in the middle uh, and ties both halves together um, to help us see the, the continuity um, within the whole text of Daniel. Um, but I do want to take a, t a little bit of time to look at those chiasms and you'll see, I think if there's anything to to take away from these chiasms is that they help to reinforce these themes that we're seeing in the book of Daniel. So even in this portion from chapter 2 to chapter 7, um, there's three main chiasms or parallels. In chapter 2 and 7, there's these dreams or these visions about four kingdoms and one everlasting one. And then we come in more towards the center, there's three and six, um, and they highlight how uh, people of God are ought to the people of God ought to live faithfully in, in the midst of exile. So we see that in um, the trial that that sends uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, and they they resist worshiping uh, Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And then we see that in Daniel's refusal to uh, stop his worship of God, and he's sent into the den of lions. Um, so we have three and six kind of showing and repeating the theme of living faithfully uh, according to God's word and to God. And then as we go into the center in chapter 4 and 5, uh, we see very clearly the rise and fall of kings. I had mentioned earlier these kings, though powerful, though scary, uh, though mighty in their rule and their, their, their influence over the people that they have, um, they are still human kings. They rise and they fall and we'll talk about later, uh, and we know that God is the one who gives them that kingship. God, being the king of kings, he allows them to be in power, and he decides when they stop. Um, so again, the Aramaic section here really helps to highlight some of the major themes of Daniel. Uh, they make the connection between the related chapters very clear, and the repetition helps it at least stick in our mind, um, but it helps to make the themes stand out. Um, so it kind of helps us to see that they're not just thrown in there randomly, but there is a, there is a structure based on the language that helps us uh, have those themes and God's purposes reinforced in our minds as we're reading through them. And then as we go on to the Hebrew, um, which covers chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 2 and 8 till the end, um, we see more of just God's elaboration uh, of the broader context of what the exile for God's people looks like. So we see 
and understand that there are these particular stories that uh, highlight specific instances and, and uh, situations in which God's people find themselves in. Um, but it's always against the backdrop of these kingdoms that are, that are going on, all these uh, pagan kings that rise and fall uh, throughout history. Um, and we get, we, get, we get a sense of the broader context. So we get to be, or the, the chapters elaborate on the historical backdrop that God's people are living in, under. Um, and the theme of struggle is very much still there. We see that the pagan kings, um, they rule harshly. They, uh, I think Seth mentioned earlier, there's a lots of desolation that's predicted and lots of desolation that comes to God's people. Um, and it kind of reinforces the idea that there, it's it's a hard time for the people of God. They, similar to what Tim had just mentioned, they they had just come from um, understanding and receiving the Davidic covenant, uh, and they've seen their kings fall and sin, and now they're being taken over by these pagan uh, gods or pagan pagan gods in a sense, in the spiritual sense, and pagan kings who are their uh, actors. Um, and it can seem very helpless, um, and there's lots of struggle. They have to adjust to deciding whether or not they should follow along with the, the pagan way of living, with the, the laws that the pagan kings are prescribing for them. And there, it's a very real sense of struggle, though in this section here we see God's promises uh, sprinkled in there. God has hope uh, extended out to his people, and they are, they are promised hopes. They, they aren't just empty promises that God won't fulfill, uh, but God gives them very clear um, promises of hope, uh, promises uh, that his kingdom is everlasting. Uh, so these themes kind of just cycle over and over again throughout uh, this portion of the Hebrew language, at least. Um, it just reinforces how much, like, as much as we are tempted to get into the weeds of all these details and all these uh, numbers and symbols of uh, the visions that largely take up uh, what's written in Hebrew, the themes are always there, and they kind of anchor us. They don't let us drift too far off um, into confusion, but they anchor us to what God is doing, uh, even while his people are suffering in exile. Um, so that was the languages. Any questions on the languages as we continue on? Yeah, sure. Of God anchoring us. You know, it's just a lovely image of when all else is falling apart, we have that hope, that stability, it sustains us. Yeah. It's uh it's very pertinent to ourselves too. Um, when the forces of the world and the forces of evil seem to have gained victory. I mean, they're they quite literally gaining victory over each other, especially over the people of God. Um, but yeah, God is anchoring them to truth, anchoring them to promises, anchoring them to his own character. Um, and uh, that kind of points us to why this, this book was even written. It was to give us comfort. It was to strengthen us uh, as people ourselves of uh, the current exile, as we await God's coming back for us and bringing us home. Yeah, very very good point. 
Um, I'm going to get into some of the themes. Uh, and there's, there's lots of room for interaction here in the themes because uh, these, these themes, as, as, you, as we've discussed much of the plot of the book of Daniel, uh, they come out pretty clearly. Uh, I've kind of distilled it to three major themes. We have God commands worship and obedience. Um, we have kingship and power belongs to God. Uh, and we have uh, kings. God's kingdom is everlasting or victorious, I would even add. Um, and as we look through these themes, we're gonna, we've kind of gone pretty high over the book of Daniel. Um, now we're going to get a little little closer to the ground and, and examine some specific texts to see exactly how these themes play out. And hopefully, as uh, I put some text in here, it's not completely comprehensive, um, but as you read, hopefully you'll take note of these texts. Take note of the texts that I provided. You'll take note of um, texts that pertain to these themes. Uh, and in a sense, you can anchor yourself to what's going on uh, thematically throughout the book of Daniel. And uh, it'll hold you fast while you're, while you're in the midst of visions. So uh, we have the first major theme, which is God commands worship and obedience. And I will just have someone read. Um, we'll read the chapter 11, 36 to 39. And this is in the context of uh, that vision of the southern and northern king. Um, we have the northern king him, here is the he, and it kind of describes um, what God is not desiring, or the very opposite of what God is commanding, which is worship and obedience. So can I get someone to read chapter 11, verse 36 to 39? Uh, Matt Boyd, thank you. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. The God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Thank you. So here we see... Um the complete rebellion of these pagan king, or this particular pagan king, against God. Uh, we see this in the other pagan kings, um, especially in Belshazzar is a good example. Uh, he refuses to um, acknowledge God after um, the writing on the wall appears. He refuses to bow his knee to God. Um, he is proud in his ways. Uh, he's proud of his own power and kingdom not acknowledging that it comes from God. Um, and so there's a very clear pattern of sin, of course, in these pagan kings. Um, but we also see this pattern apparent in God's own people. 
Uh, I, I alluded to that in earlier as we mentioned chapter 9 where Daniel is praying and confessing to God the sin of his people and pleading for mercy. Um, God's people and the pagan kings have turned away from God and they refuse to worship him. Uh, they turn to their own pride and their own power and their own merit. Um, you'll, even in the passage that Matt just read, they're turning to uh, other gods. They're making idols of, of fortresses, of literal buildings, not even of uh, powerful forces. They're making gods out of fortresses, um, and they're refusing the gods of their own fathers and uh, forefathers. And as much as I can say that this is very clearly designated to the pagan king here, um, I'd like to believe that even some of the people of God have been guilty of this as well. Um, we saw examples of a righteous Daniel and his friends resisting this temptation to, to worship idols. Um, but you can probably read in between the lines and assume that the people of God, as they are being taken over by Babylon and other kingdoms, they will be bombarded and tempted with the temptation to, to worship other gods. They have just lost their own land. They were kicked out of it. Uh, their God seemingly has lost against these other gods and the kings that they have set up. Um, and it's tempting for them to just go worship the stronger guy or the seemingly stronger guy at this point in the story. Um, and so this is, this is really a callback to, to God's desire for people to worship him. God's desire for people to obey him in faith. Um, that has not changed. That has been the same from Genesis 1 all the way to now, uh, to the rest of Scripture. God commands worship and obedience. And we see, even in the instances of uh, Daniel and his friends, God rewards and blesses those who keep faithful to his commandments, who worship him, um, who obey his commandments. Uh, much of, even in those two instances with Daniel and his friends, the reason why they're cast into these trials and cast into persecution is because they refuse to, to stop worshiping God. Um, and God sees this and God acknowledges this and God is making it very clear to us that that is what he commands of us, worship and faithful obedience. Um, so that doesn't change at all about God, even though they are in a objectively tougher situation than they were before exile. Uh, God is still the same. He still requires the same of his people. Uh, it is no excuse that they are in a pagan empire, a pagan kingdom, to not worship God. Uh, he is still very much desiring the same thing from them. And as we move on to the second theme, we have we see uh, kingship and power belongs to God. Um, we'll, we'll just read an instance uh, with Belshazzar in chapter 5, verse 24 to 31, and I'll read it for us. Chapter 5, 24 to 31, this is after the writing on the wall, and now Daniel is interpreting the writing. He says, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. We have Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and the chain of gold was put around his neck. Proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. That very same night, Belshazzar was killed. And Darius, the Mede, receives the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So just in this short passage here, we see just an immediate change of power. That, and we see that God is the one who is behind it. Um, of course, we see it very clearly here. We see it very clearly with King Nebuchadnezzar as he's reduced to the form of an animal. And then his glory and his kingdom is restored to him. Um, and those are the kind of the obvious instances of God's uh, power and kingship. Um, and him being the source of it. But even as we read through the rest of the book of Daniel, uh, keep that in mind. Keep this theme in mind. Um, what follows the, the, the Babylonians is the, the Medo-Persians. What follows them is the Greeks. What follows them is the Romans. But even then, God is still providing and giving them this kingship, giving them this power. They don't rise to power out of their own merit, but it's solely from God's hand that they have these positions, that they have the length of their reign. Um, God is the one who is the source of kingship. He is the king of kings, and no one can extend their kingdom any longer than what God has prescribed. Uh, no one can hang on to it if God decides to take it away. Um, and they only receive and come to kingship because God has given it to them. So as much as it's very clear for King Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, uh, in the first half of the book of Daniel, keep that in mind as you're, as you're reading about the kingdoms, uh, about the, the beasts even, as you see the kingdoms in the beasts. Recognize that God is the one who is deciding who will come up, how long they'll be there, and when they'll end. Um, so that is, that's very much a display of God's kingship over, over all. And the last theme that we'll briefly mention is God's kingdom is everlasting. Um, this is made very clear again in chapter 7 as uh, Daniel gets a vision of the Ancient of Days following the four beasts and then following that uh, a reference to the Son of Man. Um, it's mentioned very explicitly uh, in each of those times. Over and over, and over again, God's, king, God's everlasting kingdom is made mention of um, and this is probably one of the clearest themes in Daniel. You get a sense even from chapter 1, uh, when Daniel is uh, refusing to partake in the pagan uh, eating rituals and the, the pagan food of uh, the kingdom of Babylon, you get a sense that God is still with them and that his reign has never ended. On paper, uh, in practice, they are now in Babylon. The, God, the, the people of God are now in Babylon. So it looks like God's kingdom has come to an end. It came to an end with uh, Jehoiachim, or Jehoiakim. Um, but that is not the case. Just because God's uh, appointed kings have, have stopped reigning over Israel and, and Judah, God himself, his reign does not stop even for a second. Um, it's still there, and he's still watching over his people. Um, his kingdom is not just his rule, but it includes those he rules. Um, and we can see that theme very clearly as he preserves Daniel, his friends, um, throughout the latter half of the book, 
with the visions. There are mentions of God uh, remaining faithful to his people and preserving them. Um, and this theme here kind of bleeds into uh, our response, our own response as exiles. Um, we, reading the book of Daniel and trusting that these things are true and seeing uh, the might of God uh, through the context of what's going on in Daniel, uh, we can learn ourselves to live faithfully amidst persecution. If God were to have his kingdom stopped and thwarted, and if, God, if our God were to have lost, then there would be reason to stop living faithfully. That God is, uh, is a finite God, that God is able to be defeated, or bested and defeated. Uh, but because our God has an everlasting kingdom, um, we ought to choose that everlasting kingdom. We ought to choose the, victor- the, the victorious kingdom. Um, I put some references there even to, um, I mean, those, are, those references are from uh, Daniel himself. Um, but even in our day and age now, uh, persecution definitely doesn't come in the form of kings or I guess our president getting overthrown every other year. Um, it doesn't come in the form of being subjected to overtly grotesque uh, tasks and and objection of worship. Um, But I think nowadays it comes a little bit more subtly, uh, at least for now, at least for now. Um, So God um, who commands worship and obedience, uh, God who is the source of all power, God who um, has an everlasting kingdom, he still calls us to live faithfully amidst persecution. Um, as we read through Daniel, I hope that none of you guys are going through the same trials as Daniel as, and his friends. Um, but the trials that we go through are, are very different and very real to us, as, as real as they were to Daniel and his friends. Um, they tempt us to, to worship ourselves, to exalt ourselves. They tempt us to, to run and turn to other things, other idols for help and for safety and for victory. Um, but we know as God's people not only that he calls us to himself to worship him in the midst of persecution, to live faithfully, but he has enabled us to do that in Christ. Um, we have, on this side of the, the Old Testament, we have the assurance of Christ and the new covenant that he's brought. Um, the dominion of the Son of Man is still everlasting, and we have put our faith and we have been united to that Son of Man that is mentioned in Daniel 7. Um, so knowing that, um, I hope that this book provides comfort. Maybe the reading of itself or the reading of the book itself and the study of the, the literature itself might not pro- prove to be very comforting and affirming. Uh, but I hope that even with the tools that we've gathered today, um, as you read and see these themes and you see God's work, his, uh, his working out of redemptive history, uh, you find comfort. You find comfort in the promised victory. It is a victory that he promised back then, came to fruition in Christ, and still is yet being fulfilled even as we wait for um, Christ to return for us. Um, So that's kind of all I have for today's lesson. Um, Hopefully it has been encouraging. Uh, I hope that maybe you are spurred on to to read through Daniel again. If you've read read through it before and you weren't able to parse it out or maybe you gave up halfway through the visions, um, hopefully I provide some some helpful tools for you to read through it on your own. Um, I've certainly amassed a couple of resources myself 
uh, have helped. Uh, it's okay to go through a commentary as you're reading through these things. Um, but yeah, this is this is an incredibly profitable book. It's it's full of promises. It's full of God's character. It's on full display. It doesn't take much studying to see God's character and his reign in the book of Daniel, and I, I hope that it serves to, to encourage you and, and strengthen you. Um, so yeah, any last remarks or questions before I pray and I end our time? Paul, yeah. Uh, reading through Daniel, the first, it's, it's, it's similar to reading through Revelation because Revelation 1 through 5 is pretty smooth. It's pretty easy to get through. It's like Daniel 1, chapters 1 through 6 is pretty smooth. But when you start getting Revelation 6 to 19, it's comparable to 7 to Daniel 7 and 12. You get, in my own personal reading, you got to, probably because I read Revelation more, it's a little bit smoother and more understandable. But, uh, <coughs> In my own experience, I, don't, I only read like one, once it started at chapter 7, I can only read like one chapter at a time because your head's going to explode trying to put all these things together. But it is comparable to Revelation 6 to 19 where you just got to read it slow. You got to kind of organize things. But I found Daniel 7 and 12, starting with the vision of the four beasts, that I could only read a little bit at a time and, and try to just organize things in my head, how things are happening. But it is comparable to Revelation, as, as we know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, similarly to how we would read and study through Revelations, you come across these themes, and I would encourage you just to jot them down or highlight them, kind of in that sense of helping ourselves to be anchored to what God is doing and not getting lost in, in the, the visions and the beasts and all those uh, all that imagery. But yeah, it's, uh, it's comparable. It's... Uh, Likewise, with Revelations, it's a comforting and uh, um, encouraging text if, uh, if we don't get too lost in it. Thanks, thanks Paul. Any, anyone else? Randy, I'll let Randy be the last word. Thank you. Yeah, it gives me comfort to know that God's kingdom is not dependent on my understanding or my feelings. And even though, like some of the things that Daniel goes through and the trials that you talk about, Look, that we go through, it's important to remember Jesus saying, yet, not my will, but yours. Mm-hmm. Focusing on the eternal mm-hmm. while we endure the, the now. Yeah, definitely. And in a very real sense, we have been provided everything, every spiritual blessing in Christ for our specific trials and suffering, even as we are exiles ourselves, right? There's, God is definitely pointing us to the everlasting, pointing us forward. Um, but he doesn't negate the fact that currently we have trials and sufferings that we're going through, and he doesn't ignore those. Um, so yeah, good word, Randy. I will pray for us as we, and we'll conclude our lesson now. Father in heaven, we uh, praise you, God. You are such a powerful and almighty God, and we rejoice and we take comfort in knowing that you've united us to Christ, um, who is the Son of Man, who has dominion over all, whose kingdom is everlasting. God, uh, I pray that you'd help us as, as your saints to, to read your word um, and come out encouraged and come out challenged and convicted. Uh, I pray that you would help us to look forward, of course, to your promises, to the coming of Christ. Um, but even in our present circumstances, I pray that you would bolster and strengthen our trust in your current provision. Pray for the rest of this morning, 
that you would bless uh, our time of worship and our gathering. And I pray and lift all these things to you in Christ's name.